continuing this study of faith in a new world, and um, we're, we're you know, coming to some kind of, some ways, surprising, not what we expect, um, passages of Scripture. Um, before we get there today, you know, you know, when um, years ago when we were, you know, the, looking for a house to buy and things like that, you know, some of you might have gone through this ex- same experience. You know, you, you sometimes will, you know, same price range, you'll see the new house and you'll see the older house. And a lot of people get attracted to the new house uh, because it looks new. Everything looks clean, no one's you know, dented things or uh, marked it up or, um, and there's some sense that it's, you know, that, that it's better because it looks that way. Some people prefer the older house because oftentimes for the same price you get a little more house, but you also might think like the house is, uh, you know, all the kinks have kind of worked out. But I'm going to tell you, you know, we're, we often get impressed with just something that's new. Um, you know, I, I have a you know, truck, and the truck is uh, 2001. And, you know, there's part of me that's kind of like, oh, I would love to keep driving the 2001 truck. But then, you know, you see the new ones, and you're like, oh, um, you know, maybe, maybe classic isn't always better. You know, all of my daughters, they all have record players. And I remember when I was growing up and we started hearing about CDs and about digital recording and how it was so awesome because it was clean and everything was great. Um, you know, we loved that because it was new. It wasn't that scratchy old LP. But my daughters, they love the scratchy old LPs. And it's not because they love old things. It's because that old thing is a new thing to them. So they, you know, they're drawn to it. And a lot of times, you know, that's just how we are. We, we fall in love with things simply because they're new. There's no other reason for it. It's new. It's different. We fall in love with it. But as most of us know, like, new doesn't always mean better. That's what we're kind of told in our, you know, society. New is better. Younger is better. But new doesn't always mean better. Just because something new doesn't mean it doesn't have problems. And sometimes those problems are old problems and sometimes they're new problems. And I think that, that fascination with newness can sometimes make us fall in love with change. Like we just simply want things to change. You know, before I really understood, um, you know, the impact of certain things on society as a not very sometimes thoughtful uh, teenager, I would hear the hurricanes are coming and I would cheer for the hurricane. Because, you know, in Hawaii, it gets kind of boring every day. It's the same weather, you know. It's not like on the mainland. I want something different. I want things to be just changed, just to change, not really thinking about, you know, anything else. 
And so you have people that are in love with the new and they just want things to change. But then there's other people that are in love with the old and nothing can change. Once something is set, if it works, you know, it's the old saying, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Well, it might not be broke, but there may be a better version of it. So why not keep trying to improve things? Well, what we're seeing for these exiles, the ones that have come with Nehemiah, the ones that had come with Ezra, and, the, and then the descendants of the ones who originally came, you know, they, they, they wrestle with this, the new and the old. What, what should we change? What should we keep the same? The message we're going to talk about today is that, you know, change is inevitable. It's just, it's just part of life. As you're sitting right there, you're, you're changing in some way. Change is inevitable. Sometimes it's change we can't control, and sometimes it's decisions we make. But as the people of faith, as believers in Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ, there are certain things that should never change. So, if we live in a changing world, it seems like it'd be really important to know those things that should never change. We go back, time of Nehemiah, and you know, and you just think about what he's already overcome to get to the point where they're, they're rebuilding the wall. I mean, it took great faith and sacrifice for him to leave his really good job. He had a really good job. He could have, he could have sent someone else to do what he was going to do. But by faith and through personal sacrifice, he, he, he risks everything, and then, and then with the king's permission, he goes. When he gets there, he, he, you know, we get indications that he's, he's planning He's looking, he's not just jumping in and saying, you know, let's get to work. You know, this wall is not going to build itself, for goodness sakes, let's go. You know, no, he takes the time. He plans. He looks at the resources. He looks at the people. He gets them organized. And again, a plan, no matter how great, if people don't respond, it doesn't matter. But for him, the people respond. They come He's, he, you know, not everyone, not 100%, but seems, you know, enough, if not the majority, respond. And they come, and we, we hear, like we, did, we read last week, about he's divided up the gates, he's divided up the walls, he's given different families, you know, different professions. You know, these are the jobs you need to do. And they're doing them simultaneously. Seems like everything's going according to plan. And then we hear from our friend again, Sanballat. So in chapter 4, verse 1, says this. says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, 
What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So kind of get the picture here, you know. Um, this is... You know, we talked about this on Wednesday night, but Sambalat is not saying this back in his city. He's right there. Jerusalem, these guys have just started building. Um, you know, the, the, the Israelites are there. He's with, they can hear him. They can see him. And it's not just one guy, you know, yelling at a wall or yelling at people building a wall. The army's there. His brothers are there, which means, you know, all of the probably powerful people are there. And he's saying these things, of course, for his people to hear. And, you know, I'm sure it doesn't tell us this, but they're probably like, you know, yeah, you know, laughing, you know, going along with it. And people in Jerusalem, at least on that side, where he is, they can hear it too. And, you know, he's throwing all of these insults. He's trying to undermine them. The other people who can hear are the people who live outside of Jerusalem. A lot of the Jewish exiles who've returned, they're not in the city working. They don't live in the city. They're outside. So they can hear He's saying all these things. And I don't have any biblical evidence for this, but uh, Tobiah, you know, my picture of Tobiah is, Tobiah's like, you know, he's like the little brother, the little sidekick. And, you know, Sanballat says all these things, and Tobiah's like, yeah, and then he has to throw in his, and people might have just looked at him like, uh, you know, I think Sanballat said it all. Well, what happens after that? Well, in verse 4, Nehemiah prays. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So his prayer is not just a, it's not a prayer of vengeance. It's not like, you know, wipe them out. It's more the prayer, they're dishonoring you. They're dishonoring you. You gave us this job. You brought us together. We're your people they're dishonoring you. And Nehemiah is not saying, we're going to go take those guys out because how dare they dishonor you. He says, God, you take care of them. And then verse 6 says, so we built the wall. They kept on building. Because they recognized, for whatever reason, that Sanballat didn't have enough strength to attack them or he wasn't willing to attack them. Not yet. 
They knew that the threat was there and they knew it wasn't going away. But they kept on building, even in the face of this opposition. And it says, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So it's a pretty significant wall. If you've ever seen walls around a city, you know, um, they're pretty high. And if it's halfway up, it's already pretty significant. I'm not 100% sure of what the height would have been, but, you know, this could be 8, 10 feet high already. And if you're the enemy outside, this is pretty impressive because it's not just happening, it's happening, happening fast. I don't know um, if you grew up in Hawaii, you may never have seen construction done fast. Um, um, I remember uh, Wahiawa when uh, the, they were doing the bridge across that, that huge um, river uh, in Wahiawa. It's almost, I think it's about 100, no, maybe 50 yards across. And when it was finished, they said it took longer to do that than it took to build the Golden Great Bridge. But if, you, if sometimes you've seen something go up fast and you're like, wow, how did that happen? That was so fast. You know, it just seems like almost, you know, overnight you blinked and, you know, the house was up or the, you know, building was there. Well, they're seeing this progress and, and, and they're seeing it's going up fast and it's going up fast again because Nehemiah had this plan. But it also says this, for the people had a mind to work. And this tells you again Nehemiah's leadership is not just because he had a great plan. That's, that's one thing. But the people responded, and they responded because he wasn't just a planner. He was someone who was able to communicate the vision, tell people what their part was, and they wanted to do it. In fact, it tells you that they, were, they could have built this wall probably years, if not decades earlier. And so they keep building. Verse 7, it says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. The taunting didn't work. The intimidation didn't work. So now they start to get as many allies together as possible, and they're going to go and just overwhelm this city. Overwhelm these people. Make this wall stop. Then in verse 10, it says, in Judah, now it's talking about the Jewish exiles, the ones who aren't helping with the wall. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. All the taunts, they didn't work on the faithful who were building the walls. They didn't work on those who were helping them, but they were working on the others. And the others are concerned. 
In verse 11, the enemies then respond, and they say, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us. Uh, Don't take ten too literally. It just means they kept saying it again and again and again. And they could have been saying it for good reasons. They could have been saying it because they, they cared about these people. These are their friends and neighbors, and they didn't want to see them get killed. And they saw how big this army was. You must return to us. So then Nehemiah says, I mean, what he does, he says, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Again, we see Nehemiah bringing together his two traits. One, he's really smart. He's got this plan. He's got this organization. And what does he do? He's, He's like, we know we've strengthened this wall, but there's still weak points. We're gonna assign people to those weak points, but he doesn't just assign anyone. He puts families together. You know, don't think like, you know, little juniors out there. He's putting together, you know, the, the fighting men from these families. And they're, they're there in these, these, these gaps. And then he, he inspires them. He tells them, you know, he uses that, that ability to just, you know, focus on God and to say, look, this is the job we have. Let's do it. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Well, in verse 15, it continues. It says, Our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. So this surprise attack wasn't going to work. It says, we all return to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coat of mail, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that, that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Again, it's, it's Nehemiah. 
He's, he's now, you know, anticipating. He doesn't just believe like, oh, you know, the, you know we got word of their plans to kind of surprise us at some point. And so we took care of that, so hey, you know, threat averted. Nope. He's like, okay. That's how we're going to do things from now on. The situation has changed. And so we're going to change. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to, to be now not just working, because this is hard labor they're doing, but working in the way it described is like you got a weapon in one hand and you got the tool you're using in the other. But he, he makes this plan. He, he protects the people and again, he inspires the people. He's thought this through. And Understand, a lot of people, they, they have faith in Nehemiah. And because of that, they, they, they hear his plan, so let's do it. But understand, too, there's others that are probably like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? What is the, you know, this seems, this is making my job harder. Or we should do it a different way. The majority are like, okay, Nehemiah, it's your plan. Let's follow your plan. He just tells them, listen for the trumpet. When you hear the trumpet, rally to this place. And so in verse 21, he says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his hand. So see this story and we, we've, we've, we you know, see Nehemiah being faithful. And Nehemiah might have been, you know, like in our eyes perfectly justified in saying, you know, what, what else are you going to do, God? What next? You know, I've done all this already. You know, I've already done the impossible and now you're, you're going to have a, an army come at us? What, are you crazy? But he doesn't do that. You know, he, he says, okay, this is the situation. Something, you know, a lot of things have changed. But one thing hasn't changed. The one thing that hasn't changed is God has said, build the wall. Build the wall. I'm going to build the wall. Un unless God changes his mind, say, don't build the wall. We're going to build the wall, and we're going to find a way to build the wall. Remember, the building of the wall, and I think Nehemiah understands this, is not just the building of the wall. It's also the building of the nation. 
And he's, he's not being given relief from that. I remember when, um, you know, when we moved back to Hawaii for the, I don't know, Cheryl, it's, we've moved back here so often, I can't remember which one, maybe the second or third time, um, you know, we had, been in, we had been in Scotland, and I was working on my PhD over there, and um, then we came back here, and I, I started working here while trying to continue to work on uh, my PhD here. And, you know, it wasn't easy. You know, working on a PhD is hard enough, but, you know, we're here. Um, you know, I was working at Hawaii Baptist Academy, doing other things. And I had this conversation with my wife, I had this conversation with other people, that if God ever released me from working on my PhD, I would stop. Because I was doing things that I felt were, were meaningful, important, I thought they were ministry, but I, I was never released from that. And all along the way, from before we went the first time, until you know, we came back here and then eventually moved back to Texas. It was always this thing of, okay, how are we going to do this? And if I tell you the whole story, it would take a long, long time. And most people would go like, what are you, crazy? Why, why did you guys do this? Why in doing a PhD did you uproot your family three different times? and moved to another country at one point, moved back here, and then moved back to Texas where you started in the first place. Why didn't you just stay in Texas the whole time? But again, the, it's just like we weren't released and, and, and life kept changing and new situations came along, new circumstances, and we had to figure it out. How do we do this? You know, what do, you know how do we adapt? And the last time we moved back to Texas, we went back with no job. We were going to, you know, stay in my, with my sister for a while. Had no job. We just knew, like, that was the only way that I was going to be able to finish. And so we did it. But we weren't, I wasn't just doing a PhD. If I was just doing a PhD, I would have done what my wife said. And I'm not sure why she said it. Sometimes I'm a little suspicious. But she's like, why don't you leave for a year and get it done and then come back? I think she was thinking of me. Okay, thank you. But one thing that I would always say, and if you actually read the, the introduction to my, to my dissertation, it's, you know, when you put like an acknowledgement section, I acknowledge my family, but I say in that, I say my goal was not just to, get a, to finish a dissertation and get a PhD. It was to finish a PhD and still have kids who knew me and a wife who loved me. It, was, it wasn't just about the task. So just like with Nehemiah, there's a task building a wall, but there's also the building of a nation. I wasn't released from the dissertation, and I'm grateful for that, but I was never released from being the father and the husband that I was supposed to be. And so we just found a way, we, we kept changing. 
But that never changed. What we find Nehemiah doing is it's not turning out the way he thinks. Instead, opposition has come. And one thing we need to know is that opposition will come. When you do God's work, opposition will come. But God's mission does not change. Just because there's opposition doesn't mean that, that God's like, oh, uh, there's enemies. Oh, sorry, guys. Um, all right, change of plans. We're, we're going we're gonna to do something where, you know, it's not, you know, you're not going to get any opposition. Opposition's going to come. We saw here it was threats, rumors, intimidation, and then eventually the raising up of an army. And you know what's interesting is part of what they're saying, which is what makes a really good, you know, you want to mock people well, there has to be some truth in it. There has to be some truth in it. And there's some truth here. And the great thing is, Nehemiah gets it. You know, right in the center of what Sanballat says there in verse 2, he says, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? He's questioning their ability to do it. But Nehemiah already knew they couldn't do it. He already knew it. He already knew that God had given them this impossible task. And that's why he knows that it's happening not because of them. It's happening because of what God is doing through them. They're doing their part, but God's doing so much more to make it possible. Sometimes people may tell us, you know, you can't do it. When, when I talk about the church, we were talking about this morning in our Bible study in our Sunday school, we're talking about that, that you know, we're, we're called to, to have these relationships in the church that are closer than brothers and sisters. That it's supposed to be that close. And people will say, you know, in American, modern American society, it's just not possible. We don't have time. We don't value it. We um, like to kind of keep our, our distance Way before social distancing, Baptists had already been doing this for years. I used to go to a church, even at this church, this front five, six pews, like no one would sit there. You know, it's, but they would all spread out everywhere else. You know, I remember my dad at Eva Beach one time, he made some people really angry because our church would seat about 250 but we only had about 70. So he took out 100 chairs. <laughs> it was like he proclaimed Satan as God, you know, because they're like, oh, we got to sit next to people? Are you crazy? Well, we, we, when we look at that and we hear about that's what you're trying to do in this society? In a society that celebrates independence and individualism, you're trying to teach community? What are you, crazy? 
It's not possible. They're right. They're right, it's not possible. We can't possibly do this on our own. We're called to do our part. We're called to build the relationships as best we can, and then we trust that God will do the impossible. Well, not just opposition is coming. What we saw in verse uh, 10, doubt comes. Doubt comes, and a doubt doesn't just, you know, it usually doesn't really affect those who are the faithful, but, but doubt is coming especially among those who are kind of like, ah, just the next couple levels out. They're still there. They're still kind of part of the, of the community of faith. But they, they hear the Sanbalats. They hear about why this can't be done. And they say, you know what? We can't do this, so why don't we do something like it, but not exactly the same? When I was a kid, you know, I really wanted a G.I. Joe action figure, not doll, action figure, okay? I really wanted one. But my, you know, my, my dad was a pastor. They, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And so they, you know, for Christmas, bought us one that was like a G.I. Joe. It might have been G.I. Bill or, you know, G.I. Frank. I don't know. But it wasn't G.I. Joe. And he, you know, he couldn't do all the things. It was like it. And we appreciated it. You know, we played with it. But it wasn't the same. I think a lot of times that, you know, in church, we have well-meaning people using well-reasoned arguments saying, we cannot be that Trinitarian community that, that we've read about and we've been thinking about, but we can be something like it. So let's just settle and be something like it. The doubts come. The doubts don't always say, you know, you cannot do it, just stop. Sometimes they say that. But a lot of times the doubts are more subtle. That's too big of a vision. That's too great. That's too much. I'm always reminded of William Carey, the, the missionary to India, first Baptist missionary to India. And I always remember his, his statement that you can still find in India on buildings that were started because of his ministry. And he said, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. We've lost that first part of attempting great things. We have lowered what we think God can do through his church. And we don't attempt great things. And by great things, I'm not talking about Oh, you know, we, we, can, we can have a 200-acre campus here and, you know, all of these things. We can have all these ministries. No. The, the other churches have done that. Good for them. The great thing is to be that church 
to have that quality of relationship and community, to be committed disciples to, to Jesus Christ through his word, be that. That's not just a great thing. It is one of the greatest things that we can do. Doubt's going to come. Opposition's going to come. God's mission doesn't change. His mission doesn't change. We find a way. We make the adjustments to continue to be and do what God has placed before us. And then thirdly, what we find is we find that sometimes we've got to change the plans. Sometimes we've got to change the plans. But the mission doesn't change. Nehemiah changes his plans. You know, I'm pretty sure there were at least a few of the people back then, because this isn't a modern you know, sit, you know, situation or modern problem, of the, the, you know, the ones that were kind of like like more like what we call OCD, you know? And Nehemiah said, this is the plan. And they loved his plan because it, everybody had a job, you know, everything was assigned, it was perfect. But now Nehemiah is saying, uh, we got to change. And they're like, why we got to change? You said, this is the plan. This is what God wants us to do. And now you're changing it can't change it. Don't, please. I, you know, I just got used to, you know, carrying these rocks, and now you want me to carry the rocks and carry a sword. What are you, crazy? It's, it's, I can't deal with this. And yet we find that we sometimes have to change the plans. But again, we don't change the mission. And God's the only one who can change the mission. Leaders find ways to accomplish God's mission in a way that's you know, consistent with his word, in a way that, that accomplishes all that, he's, that he wants us to accomplish but they find ways. There has to be that time when we know to stand firm and say, you know, this, this cannot change. And there's other times when we're gonna have to change course. If you understand what the word retreat means, retreat isn't run away, you know. Um, you know, good military leaders never are one, if, if their troops are just running away, then the leaders have probably died. Retreat is strategic. It's a strategic withdrawal. There's a way you do it. There's a way to, there's a reason you do it. And you organize in such a way that, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a rear guard and you're doing all these things to, to make sure you can have this withdrawal. But we gotta know, 
when to stand firm, when to retreat, when to alter course, when to think about a different way. The plans have changed, but the wall is still being built. God's mission, it hasn't changed. We, 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 sometimes it's people. In fact, I think most of the time it's people. Sometimes it's circumstances. And sometimes things happen that, that cause us to, to alter what we do. For example, a pandemic. My whole thing from the very beginning, and I love the fact that our church was, was you know, ready and willing to do this, is look, pandemic's here. But God didn't say, hey, stop being the church during the pandemic, and then, and then we'll get back to being the church. No. I love the fact that our church might have done more in the last year than maybe in my first four years combined. Done more in terms of ministry, done more in terms of reaching out to one another, done more to, to do you know, global, international type missions, been more devoted to God's word. I am not hoping for another year of pandemic. But if that's what it takes for us to really understand and really express what it means to be the church, whatever it takes. But we, we've taken the situations and, and we've said, okay, let's find a way. Let's find a way. And often the problems are people. We have the enemies, the ones that, that really don't want us to succeed. They do not want the church to be the church because when the church is really the church, it is so attractive to the rest of the world that it questions all the fundamental beliefs about the world. The reason the world is the way that it is, the reason that it fundamentally justifies you know, the, the way that it exists, you know, use of power and force and authority, the reason it is is because it says there's no other way. This is the only way. The best way is to put, you know, people you trust in authority over you to tell you what to do. That's the best way. But when the church shows them another way, it's so attractive because they realize it doesn't have to be the way we, we say it is. It doesn't always have to be this constant power struggle. There's another way. And the other people is, again, it's the people who, who are doubtful. The people who can't see the bigger vision. And let me just tell you this, the faithful, the faithful must not let the fearful be in control. You don't dismiss the fearful. You don't say, get away from me, you coward. No. But you can't let the fearful control what goes on. 
The faithful are the ones building the walls. And if the faithful continue to be faithful, the fearful are going to benefit. But if the fearful, if the fearful become in control, you're never going to accomplish what God says. You know, churches often ask, they come, you know, because they understand this. They understand that things need to be changed. And even when I first came here, you know, the church, the church said, you know, we need to get, you know, a church. The church was much older and it's, you know, gotten younger now. But, but they're like, you know, we need to get younger. They, they, they knew they needed to change. And so the question is, okay, what's okay for us to change? You know, what can we change? That's actually the wrong question. At least it's not the question we should ask first. The first question we should ask is, what is truth and where is it found? Well, it's found in God's Word. And after we ask that question, the next question is this, what is God's mission? What is His purpose? What is His mission and purpose for creation? What is His mission and purpose for the kingdom? What is His mission and purpose for the church, what is his mission and purpose for this church? And what is his mission and purpose for each of us? We ask those questions first because truth, God's word doesn't change. His mission and purpose doesn't change. Once we know that, we can ask the question, what's okay for us to change? Because we will never change anything that will change his mission, his purpose, his word. Change. It's inevitable. Enemies, they're around us. What we do in the presence of, the en of our enemies is we make the changes we need to make to be able to continue to move towards accomplishing God's purpose.